0: Welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. My name is Jody Lima, and on this twice-monthly podcast, posted on the first and third Monday of each month, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today I'm going to be interviewing Victoria Bond. Uh, She's author of the novel Zora and Me, the Summoner, uh, which is the third novel in a series of books about the writer Zora Neale Hurston as a child. And we're going to be talking about that book as well as the YA historical novel, The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing, Traitor to the Nation by M.T. Anderson. As you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, I usually start with a poem. I didn't last time because I included a short interview with Pam Allen about World Read Aloud Day. And I'm going to do something a little different this time as well. I'll probably get back to reading a poem again next time, or maybe I won't. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Anyway, since we're going to be talking about Zora Neale Hurston, both as a writer and an anthropologist and folklorist, I found this short audio clip from the Library of Congress I thought was both relevant and and kind of interesting. Uh, Let me just read what it says on the library's web page about the clip. Mule on the Mount, performed by Zora Neale Hurston at the Federal Music Project Office, Jacksonville, Florida, on June 18, 1939. Zora Neale Hurston, originally of Eatonville, Florida, was already a published novelist and folklorist when she took a job with the Federal Writers Project in Florida. This song is the most widely distributed work song in the United States, with a consistent tune but varying verses. Zora Neale Hurston originally learned Mule on the Mount from George Thomas in Eatonville, Florida.
1: Uh, this song I'm going to sing is a lining rhythm, and I'm going to call it Mule on the Mount, though you can start with any verse you want and give it a name. And it's the most widely distributed white song in the United States. And it has innumerable verses and whatnot about everything under the sun. And it's a line and rhythm, though they sometimes sing it just sitting around the juke houses and doing any kind of work at all, chopping wood and in the lumber camps and everywhere you find this song. Nowhere you can't find parts of the song, Mule on the Mount.
2: Well, is it, no, is it, a, sort of, is it a consistent song as you hear it
1: all over? The tune is consistent, but uh, the they verses, you know, how things, every locality you find some new verses everywhere. I mean, does
2: it have the same choral verses?
1: Have Mule on the Mount wherever you hear it. Well, there's some place I haven't heard that same verse Mule on the Mount, but there's no place that I don't hear some of the same verses. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. All right.
2: All right. So did Where did you learn this particular
1: way? That you can sing well, I heard the, the first verses I got in my native village of Edenville, Florida, from George Thomas. And just uh, <laughs> well, one version that you're going to sing? I'm going to sing. or oh, I guess all the, the tune is the same. I'm going to sing verses from a whole lot of places. Uh-huh. Cabin got a mule, mule on
2: the mound, call him Jerry. (laughs) Cabin got a mule, mule on the mound, call him Jerry. Gonna ride him down, Lord, Lord, ride him down. I got a woman, she shake like jelly all over. I got a woman to shake like jelly all over Her hips so broad, Lord, Lord, her hips so broad My little woman, she had a baby this morning My little woman, she had a baby this morning he had blue eyes, Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes a told her, it must be the hellfire captain <coughs> a told her, must be the hellfire captain ha! He had blue eyes, Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes Oh uh, don't you hear them? A uh, coo coo boys keep a Ha! Don't you hear them? A uh, coo cool birds keep a Ha! It's look like rain. Lord, Lord, it look like rain. I got a rainbow wrapped and tied around my shoulder. Ha. I got a rainbow. Wrapped and tied around my shoulder It looked like rain Lord, Lord, it looked like rain Hand me down Two, three cans of tomatoes Oh, hand me down Two, three cans of tomatoes A can of corn Lord, Lord, a can of corn I got a woman, she's pretty but she's too and I got a woman, she's pretty but she's too and she won't live long, Lord, Lord, she won't live long.
0: My guest today is Victoria Bond, educator and award-winning author of Zora and Me. Her latest book, which is the third book in this series about the writer Zora Neale Hurston as a child, is Zora and Me, The Summoner. You can find her website at victoriabondauthor.com. Thank you for joining me today, Victoria.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: As I mentioned, the, this latest book is actually the the third book in the series that you've written. This fictional series of stories about uh, Zora Neale Hurston as a child. And I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. where did this idea uh, come from of this um, to write a book like this?
3: Yeah, well, you know, I have to start by saying the Zora and Me trilogy is actually um, (laughs) co-authored, but the first volume in the series was co-authored by myself and my dear friend, T.R. Simon. And after we wrote the first book, again, inspired by the childhood of novelist and anthropologist Harlem Renaissance luminary Zora Neale Hurston, we had very different ideas about the next book. And over the course of trying to put together the manuscript, maybe about a year and a year and a half went by of us trying to work on the book together. We finally were able to see that we were interested in actually telling two different stories. So From that point, we actually divided the rest of our writing duties. So my friend, T.R. Simon, whose name is Tanya, wrote the second book in the series, which is called Zora and Me, the Cursed Ground. And then I finished off the trilogy, which is called The Summoner. And, you know, Zora Neale Hurston is this iconoclastic figure that if she didn't live, you would have had to have made her up. She lied about her age to be able to enroll in high school. She's from this kind of special, magical, late 19th, early 20th century place, Eatonville, Florida, which was one of the first all-black incorporated towns in the country. And Zora spends her life both documenting African-American culture, African-American history, storytelling, customs, and folklore. And she herself becomes a part of that same fabric that she was so hell-bent on documenting and preserving. And my co-author, Tanya, has a background in anthropology, and she just really, from the start, you know, had this vision for the the anthropologist as a kind of detective. And that was kind of the, I guess, the seed that grew the series, which really is a mystery series. And each of the books, actually, beyond being a mystery series, has a kind of horror tropes. So the first novel in the series is really a monster murder story. The second book in the series is really – a ghost story about the past and what ghosts have to tell us about the secrets of our towns and the places where we live. And the third book, you know, for me, I really wanted to try to get at writing a zombie story, but kind of from left field. (laughs) And I I tried, I hope I, I did it, I did something. But That's kind of the the ethos, you know, behind the series. It's, you know, it's the anthropologist as girl genius detective really kind of digging into horror and mystery tropes along the way.
0: And I did have a chance to read Zora and Me the Summoner, which I enjoyed oh. very much. And okay. it's it interesting, it's it both um, historical, but like you said, it was a mystery story as well. And those sort of elements of horror sort of all combined uh, together. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this uh, latest one and uh, what a might, reader might expect uh, when they when they read it?
3: So, you know, I guess I'll begin by saying that in the 1890s, Zora Neale Hurston's father, John Hurston, actually became the mayor of Eatonville, Florida, where Zora grew up. And that was a historical detail that I found fascinating you know, that at the end of the 19th century, there's a Black girl who can say in the Deep South that the mayor is her father. And I wanted to kind of play out and explore the complications around how he would become mayor. And I say that because John Hurston and Zora's writings and in the portrayal of John Hurston, and the trilogy is really a showboater. He's a narcissist, he's selfish. He um is antagonistic. Toward Zora, because in part because she stands up to him and she has her own sense of self that he finds offensive not only in a child but in a girl child. So, one thing to look for in Zora and me, the summoner, is how someone so ill equipped to handle power (laughs) comes to be in charge of a town. And for me, kind of setting up. Up his rise to power was really about what has to go wrong in a place where decent people will make a decision like this. Why would decent people vote for this showboater, narcissist person? And for me, you know, it was kind of this series of horrific events, starts with a lynching in this all-black town, which of course really shakes up the residents because they perceive themselves at least somewhat as being protected from the racism that surrounds them. And soon after the lynching, a grave robbery occurs. And that's this other event that shakes the town to its core because it's so offensive to their religious beliefs and also to their sense of decency. You know, so what can a reader expect from this? You know, it's kind of it's a, a mystery story about how a narcissist comes to power. And it has to do with a lynching and a grave robbery. I don't think that's what the publisher wrote up about the book. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's how I was putting the plot together as the author.
0: And what was the research process like uh, in sort of, like you said, this is a lot, there's a lot, the, a lot of the elements in this are things that were part of her life. There are things that happened. Um, and so, and so how did you go about doing the research process and then molding that into a, a story?
3: So the trilogy was first published in 2010, I think. So now it's 2021, my goodness. So let's see. I probably started reading Hurston as a researcher probably around 2008, 2009. And, you know, I just, I think I started like researchers do. I started with Hurston's own autobiography, and then I read the two major biographies of her. And because these books focus on her as a child, it was kind of easy to kind of earmark certain details and scenes, both from Hurston's portrayal and from her biographer's portrayal, portrayals that we wanted to put into the book, that we wanted to make reference to. And then there's this other element. Because Zora Neale Hurston wrote so much nonfiction and she wrote so much anthropology and she was such um, just a prolific keeper of customs that there were all these other kinds of interesting details that come from her own travelogues and her own anthropology that as an author and you know as a researcher, I was just kind of sticking a pin in going along. And then, of course, there's Zora Neale Hurston's actual novels. (laughs) So, you know, so there was kind of these three tiers of work. You know, there's the nonfiction stuff. There was Zora's own nonfiction stuff. And then there was Zora's fiction. So the Zora and Me trilogy kind of weaves all three of those threads together. Now, in terms of actually coming up with a story... I was thinking about the things that interested me and what I wanted to say about Zora's life and about someone like Zora in the book. So for me, I just I wanted to portray Zora as a young woman, really, in the Summoner as a 14-year-old in the early 1900s. That's what she was. And really coming up against both racism and sexism. And the struggle it must have been for racism and sexism not to define how she thought of herself. You know, so just the kind of resistance that she had to put up within her own psyche and what she thought of herself and what she considered herself to be capable of. So I kind of I wanted to try to document, to explore a little bit of that journey. You know, how do you keep yourself to yourself by believing you can be more than what other people tell you you can be? So that was kind of, that was the kernel that I wanted to explore with young Zora, the character in the summoner. There were other kind of some extraneous things that were woven into the plot that ended up being kind of central to the plot, but they weren't at the top of my mind, (laughs) you know, starting off or, you know, trying to outline The book, and that actually ended up being some of the zombie stuff, which was kind of came out of the research. And it was just, it was something that I kept following, you know, kind of down different rabbit holes of reading. And, you know, Zora herself in the late 1930s takes a photograph of this woman in Haiti who was believed to have died in 1917, but then reappears, I think, in 1936. And her family confirms that it was this woman that they buried, but they have no idea what happened to her in between the time they put her in the ground and this time when she shows up. So Zora taking a picture of this woman, taking notes on this woman, saying something happened to this woman, but she can't imagine what it is. You know, Zora with a camera taking this really haunting picture for me, it was a, it was a, a documentation of all that we can't know about someone's miseries, all of this lost time that was clearly spent in such a a degraded denigrated state that I wanted to try to write a, a backstory for that, for that woman in a way. And, Oh, my goodness, I think. So that was kind of so that was on my brain, but I wasn't really sure how to get at it. And I just started looking into grave robbing. (laughs) And once I started looking into grave robbing, I started, you know, coming up upon, you know, all these scholarly papers about the Medical research that was done started to be almost exclusively done on black people in the late 19th century because there were so many rules and regulations put in place against doing medical research on white cadavers. And once I started to kind of go down that rabbit hole, I thought I could combine them in this book, you know, the kind of the, the history and the folklore of the zombie around exploitation, at least in the African diaspora, with this very real history of medical research and medical exploitation in American medical schools and in the American South.
0: Yeah, as I say, even though we talked about the horror elements, I mean, it's the sort of reality of
3: mm-hmm. uh, things
0: going on uh, that turn out to be the really horrifying uh, things, the, the actual events uh, that, that were going on at that time. And as well I should also mention that uh, this is also a, a story of a friendship, too, with uh yes. and, and Carrie, so that's a big part of it as well. So about uh, these two girls and sort of a friendship that's, Reaching a certain stage too, because Zora is somebody who right. you know has to go, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm, because that's part does. of yeah, that. Because that's part of who she is as well.
3: Well, you know, I think that was something that was inspired by the life of Zora Neale Hurston. You know, now many years ago, sitting down and trying to figure out the the voice and the perspective for the book you know, I I remember just kind of doing like a very like textbook writerly exercise, you know, like, okay, sit down, Vicky, write this paragraph from the perspective of a boy that likes Zora. Okay, do that. Okay. Write this paragraph from Zora's perspective. Okay, do that. Now write this paragraph from the perspective of Zora's best friend. And I think the best friend Stuck because writing from Zora herself just seemed impossible. You know, it just seemed like a crazy, a crazy thing to take on. But writing from Zora, from the perspective of Zora's best friend, really started to feel like the right thing to do. In part because the real Zora Neale Hurston didn't really have like a lifelong ride or die friend, right? She had a famous or it's become famous friendship with Langston Hughes, you know, that kind of ended in, you know, crashed and burned just flames of anger and, you know, feelings of deep betrayal. And, you know, I think Zora was a lonely person and, to give her this voice that could tell her story in a way that she might appreciate just seemed like the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, I think, too, she's got such a just this sort of large personality that mm-hmm. almost as i as a first person narrator, just to, trying to would almost be be difficult to do without, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure I could do it. You know, somebody's just such a, a big personality to be so forceful on the page. But seeing it from, from a outside perspective uh, gives it sometimes that distance. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong about that.
3: No, I think that you're right. You know, I think it's often for a first person narrator. I think it's often easier to write first person characters that are quiet. <laughs> and kind of shy you know it's funny because you know in Octavian nothing most of the book Octavian is silent right most of the references to him he's silent he doesn't talk you know he's you know I'm observing I'm observing you know so it's I think that that's part of the the fun of writing a book is that you can write for people and in people's voices that aren't necessarily the most talky, the most chatty, the most out there, most extroverted.
0: Is there a part of the book that you'd like to share?
3: Sure. I'd be happy to read the prologue. And it starts um, with a date. So it's Eatonville, Florida, September 29th, 1956. Granddaughter. Every day since I was 14, the scar on my left hand reminds me of your grandfather, my dear Teddy. He told me that the scar would fade, and he was right, it mostly did. But when I hold my hand up in the bright noonday light, a shadow of that 1905 scar survives. Everyone in Eatonville suffered terribly that year, including my best friend Zora. Grief and loss afflicted us both. It chased us through a grove in the lightning and rain, at kitchen tables and on porch swings, at swamp banks and in dark cabins. Loss bore down on our necks with icy blue and stinging breath. The faded scar on my hand is a testament to how Teddy and Eatonville helped me to heal in place. They were my anchors, my salve, my proof of miracles. Grief prodded Zora to reject miracles. She insisted instead that the earth and life on it make sense. Stories are the thing that anchored her. Eatonville itself couldn't give her peace, but stories about Eatonville might. She carried the story of Eatonville with her around the world. Stories protected her, healed her, and the summer of 1905 was Zora's last in Eatonville. And now you, her namesake, are leaving. I offer the story of our parting as a goodbye. I hope this story will be, for you, a harbor in the storm. The final thing I must say is, fear no loss. Despite our efforts, loss touches us all. Stand brave, dear girl. Loss will not be your undoing. Loss cannot hold a candle to love. Love is our story. Your grandmother, Carrie Baker. And that's it. That's the opening.
0: It's quite an opening.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks.
0: <laughs> well, it's 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 both very very evocative, but it also you know it it sets up questions the what what's going on in the scar you know all those uh, sort of things, but, uh, but it also gives us a, a, a definite perspective too you know and this, this sort of uh, sense of you know looking back and uh thinking you know to get a sense of somebody who's who's lived a long time and and has learned a few things mm-hmm. yeah and now the the book you picked as one of your particular uh favorite uh, books for young readers is the astonishing life of Octavian Nothing Traitor to the Nation by M.T. Anderson, and there are two volumes, two parts to this. Um, the first one's Volume One, Volume One: The Pox Party, which was uh, published in two thousand six, and then Volume Two: The Kingdom on the Ways, which was published in two thousand and eight. And for readers who either are unfamiliar or just not, haven't got around to reading uh, this um, book yet, can you talk a little bit of? Well, There's a, a lot to <laughs> cover, but w- what basically it's about.
3: Oh, my gosh. So first, I think M.T. Anderson is one of the greatest living American writers. (laughs) I'll just say that. Um, His work, you know, I don't need to go on about this. I think last year or 2019, you know, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award for, you know, literature for young people, all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, people that read YA, read literature for young people, know that M.T. Anderson is kind of as good as it gets in that regard. So be that as it may. You know, I I guess just one other thing about M.T. Anderson, before I talk a little bit about Octavia Nothing, is that it really is so striking to me how masterful he is at genres you know like his work he just gets into a genre and just masters it you know like feed is like a perfect sci-fi novel you know like *Octavia nothing is just like as good as it gets historical fiction for readers of any age. So I guess to begin there, Octavian Nothing is a work of historical fiction, and it is about a black child who is the subject of an experiment in Revolutionary War era Massachusetts. And this child, Octavian, is raised under these very strange circumstances in what is called this College of Lucifer lucidity that I think was based on, um, I think it's called the College of Philosophers, or you know, it's in the the historical note at the, the author's note on the history at the end of the book. So Octavian is raised under these very strange circumstances, and over the course of the novel, he comes to understand that he is a slave and that the experiment that he's been subjected to has changed. So for the first half-ish of the novel, the experiment is proving that Black people, those of African origins, are equal to whites. But when the College of Lucidity loses their funding and they have to get a new funder... (laughs) (laughs) The subject of the experiment changes and now supported by Virginia slaveholders, the subject, the point of the experiment is to prove that people of African descent are inferior. So That kind of being the setup, you know, it's like the book is about science. The book is about philosophy. The book is like a really strange kind of gothic story. But that aside, the, both novels are just these like tremendous meditations on the nature of freedom and the nature of the American experiment and how Black people fit into the American experiment, how Black people are the American experiment in some ways. And the novels are just so tremendously moving. <laughs> And they're also just so learned. And I think for readers that like to learn, you know, as you read, you know, like these books are just like so deep and fun on that level, too. You know, so M.T. Anderson is one of my favorite authors. You know the Octavian Nothing books, Volume One and Volume Two, I really love I think in some ways, I like Volume Two offers different pleasures because it's like a little bit more of an adventure story you know it's like more war scenes they're on a ship, so if you like a like old kind of old timey kind of on the high seas, that book kind of offers up some of those pleasures too, and they're just just these beautiful meditations on again slavery and freedom the nature of democracy what does it mean to be a patriot what is a human life worth how do we measure value and you know they're just they're just works of genius and i'm just happy to talk about them get a chance to talk about them with anyone so and especially you jody thanks thank you thank
0: you (laughs) Well, what I thought was interesting is the way in telling the story – well, Octavian is the – at least for for much of both, the first-person narrator. And when you first encounter him, um, because he's been sort of living in this sort of artificially created bubble, he's – we're unclear about what happens and we sort of discover –
3: Mm-hmm. He's as kind of a bu- in a Truman show.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a little bit naive. We get a sense that something is not right, but it's only – we sort of gradually uh, – sort of as he discovers things, although I think we can sort of uh, pick up things, but it, we sort of gradually discover things as he discovers them and that sort of helps i think um, in that sort of rather than sort of dropping us in the story we have to and it's sort of like i always think about your own uh, novel being a mystery it's a, at, at first at least there's a sort of a mystery about what is going on that just doesn't seem to make and then but we gradually learn and it, it, it's 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 terrible uh what we learn but uh, you know what we learn with him uh, you know what's what's really going on
3: yeah you know it's it's horrifying you know in the two kind of the two instances. When I first read this book, you know, whenever it came out now, you know, in the last decade, the previous decade, I can't hardly believe it's 2021, the the instances that really got me thinking, like, what the heck is going on? The little girl who doesn't talk? You know, who's kind of around in the beginning, just like very quick, you know, and she's beaten horribly by the scientists because she doesn't get verbs or she doesn't speak or do something, and then, when Octavian has a dog and he's feeding his dog, and then he discovers his dog is dead for me, I was just like this is like a straight up horror story, you know, like we have a child who doesn't talk who's being beaten, and then we have a dead dog, this is. Kind of Stephen King like a little bit <laughs> in that regard. You know, it has like these very clear genre tropes put in. A child doesn't talk. We have a dead dog. So I can, I appreciate the kind of gothic horror element.
0: And it's also this relation. He starts to develop this relationship with this other character, uh, bon- I think it's pronounced Bono. Uh, because, yeah. Uh, and uh, who tries to give him a clue. About because about, he's mono is um somebody who who who's a slave and, and and knows exactly what's going on is trying to as best he can to saying you don't know what's going on. <laughs> you you really don't you need to be aware right. of what's going on and um and he becomes sort of this conscious of the novel conscious of the novel um, mm-hmm. going through and eventually Octavian does become to understand what's going on. But I thought that their relationship was kind of interesting.
3: Yeah. You know, I love Bono so much. (laughs) And it's kind of like the genius of M.T. Anderson, because I think I would have been, as the writer, I I couldn't have dreamed up any of this. I certainly couldn't have dreamt up Bono. But that Bono has this sense of that he feels pity for Octavian. You know, instead of envy. That he's... He's aware of how kind of behind the eight ball Octavian is because he doesn't know what's going on. That that's kind of the bridge that Bono can cross to be his mentor, really, his big brother and his mentor. You know, so I just, there's a scene early in the book. or maybe it's not so early. I can't recall when Bono basically tells Octavian the nature of his own name. You know, and he says, my mother was pregnant with me when she was bought. This is why my name is Bona. I'm pro bono. I'm, you know, I come for free. Ha ha ha. And basically, Octavian, that's you were were the same in that regard. Your mother was bought when she was pregnant with you. And he tells Octavian, like, you're a slave like me. And then Octavian starts to get it. And then Bono says, well, you can cry just this once about it because you'll never be free again. You know, and it's just like, my goodness, you know, you find out you're a slave from your friend, you know, like your master isn't going to tell you (laughs) that you're a slave, but you find out your true condition from someone who understands it because they have literally been in in your womb, so to speak, you know, because this is beyond being in your shoes. This is, you know, we were in the same kind of womb situation, You know, it's just, oh, my God, it's just a a work of genius. It's just so beautiful and so frightening and scary and heartbreaking.
0: What's interesting is he doesn't just sort of uh, teach him about what's really going on, Uh, as we learn later. I mean, he takes on this sort of heroic status by, you know, by escaping himself, you know, and and, um, just it's just this amazing character who, I'm trying to remember, he, he was putting together a, um, is it a booklet or? Um,
3: yeah. Yes, he is making, it is kind of a booklet. Yeah. You know, it's almost, it seems, it's almost described like a scrapbook.
0: Yeah, the scrapbook, yeah.
3: Yeah, of all of the, the atrocities and the nature of punishments and torture, episodes of torture that black people in, colonial Massachusetts endured. Bono has a really, I remember the first time I read this book, I was like, Oh my God, what happens to Bono? And the second book Bono has like an amazing, (laughs) I don't want to spoil it, but he really has an amazing re-entry in the, in volume two. So Yeah. And he's even he's more heroic because in volume two, they're actually soldiers for the British. So that's where it's like more war stuff, a lot of fighting, you know, but it's literally a lot more heroics for Bono.
0: The other relationship that kind of fascinates is between Octavian and his mother, which is a lot more complicated Uh, because his mother is, you know, very, very interesting, and complicated uh, character and um, very important uh, to him. But he's not quite sure what their relationship is, I think, at some times.
3: Yeah, you know, it's so strange that because they're in that weird artificial situation of kind of this house of men with just this single woman, Octavian's mother, that she's kind of like the coquette on call like for a lot of the book and it's clear that to some extent because Octavian is so divorced from himself for so much of the story that he takes on that kind of that position or relationship to her as kind of the, not the suitor of course, but just this admirer of her and i think that one of the the things that like always makes me get teary makes me cry is that near the end of the book when we get to see octavian from the perspective of what's his name ev goring of the it's the epistolary section of the book where this man who's in the revolutionary army is writing home and he goes out one night and he sees Octavian is sitting alone and he asks, you know, Octavian, you know, basically like, what's bothering you, dude? And Octavian says, I didn't even know her name. And I just think, oh my God. Of course, you know, the man doesn't know what the heck he's talking about, but you're just like, oh my God, you didn't know your mother's name. Oh, you know, it's like, it's just, it's this weird take on the the broken relationships between parents and children in american slavery you know even though they're together and they know each other that they have been ripped apart from each other in how they know each other just because the context is so weird, you know? So there's so much, you know, in the African-American kind of psyche about, and also like in literal African-American history about being cut off or separated from one's origins in Africa. And Octavian experiences that knowing his mother who was born in Africa, (laughs) You know, so it's this very artful distillation of that alienation and this feeling of never being able to know that M.T. Anderson gets at even when the character does know his mother.
0: He does go this 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 emotional. Actually, Ringer doesn't quite qualify <laughs> for the sort of the 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 trauma, really.
3: Right. It, it's, Oh my God. It's like just Octavia, you know, I just, I can't, you, you think, did anyone like this ever exist other than like in this book and MT Anderson's brain? Like you hope so, you know, it's just, you know, you just think about what all of us, what the ring, the ringer, your intelligence, everything good about you, the ringer that everything good about you can be put through. You know, and I think that's the one thing about Octavian that why I love him in the book so much is kind of because in a weird way, he's perfect. (laughs) Like, he's just like, he's just so he's just so wonderful in the vastness of his human understanding that, you know, you're just like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, you just know so much about being human. And I guess these books are just so wi- This, Yeah, they're just so wise. You know, I think Octavian Nothing is one of the wisest books I've ever read.
0: You definitely do see, you know, like I said, we start out with this sort of naivete, but he he really comes to a full understanding of what's going on. And I thought you touched on this earlier as sort of one of the themes is kind of the 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 lies we tell ourselves to raise ourselves, and I'm thinking particularly of those group of men, um, you know, who, who have this um, sort of project there. I mean, the, the idea is they want to prove the inferiority. Of, of, of black people. And he comes even sharper, sharper focus when Mr. Sharp comes in because Octavian is spoiling, um, the project because he's, you know, he's, he's doing too well. And so, how, in order to reinforce that lie, he has to, undercut it you know so to because the lie has to exist that seems very some somehow relevant these days um uh, about the lies we tell ourselves to prop ourselves up uh, but that that theme that goes um uh throughout and and how octavian at first doesn't know it but then you know comes to understand it himself even though the men like mr sharp never quite grasp it
3: Right. And it all, it all comes to a head at the end of the novel when they have recap they've captured Octavian, you know, after he's run away, when his mother dies as a result of the pox party, and he gets caught up with these revolutionaries and his dear friend, who's at the, the author of the epistolary section, basically by, you know, turns Octavian in and he's, recaptured or taken back by Gitney and Sharp. And they have that amazing, like straight up like Greek, Latin kind of argumentation back and forth. You know, I think that's one part I also really appreciate the nov about the novels is that they have this this technical prowess in their presentation of very complicated Ideas. So when Octavian at the when he's I guess they take the mask off, and he he says to Gitney, just free me. Like, why are you doing like if you're so this and that, just set me free, you know? And Gitney says, Well, you know, there are all these economic considerations, black people can't be free, you know, the economy would fall apart. And Sharp and Gitney kind of go back and forth. Sharp harks on or harps on, you know, the fact that African, the descendants of Africans, Africans are inferior, you know, you're savages, you can't think, you lack rationality. And then, Gitney focuses on kind of the economics of it. And I think Sharp also kind of gets into, you know, capital profits, capital profits. And Octavian is just like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, this is like, this is your argumentation. Like, I've spent my hours learning Greek and Latin and learning philosophy And, like, these are your arguments for why I should be a slave? Like, listen to yourselves. Like, you don't make any sense. (laughs) And then that's when they're like, put the mask back on them, you know, shut them up. But it's just like, oh, my God. It's just the, the hypocrisy at the heart of the American experiment really just is rolled out for the reader in very clear argumentative terms. And it's really startling and really stirring to read
0: and because it's said in the revolutionary war times it it sort of undercut cuts that you know we have this sort of mythos about the times about you know the founding fathers and freedom and what it was all about but in reality freedom was a very limited uh, thing and how books like this sort of you know, helped to act sort of a corrective to sometimes we how we we look at look at those times uh, maybe through definitely roasted tinted
3: glasses. Yeah, you know, definitely. And I think that's kind of like the trick of MT Anderson in a way is because like he lays bare the hypocrisy of the founding fathers and of this kind of this patriotic revolutionary, you know, zeal and in a way, he not only does it through the use of a black protagonist, but he also does it through like the the exploration and all the quotes and passages from Greek and Latin. <laughs> you know, so it's like, so it's kind of this double way he exposes and kind of talks back So the hypocrisy at the center of the idea of American independence and American freedom. So he's doing it through the black experience. And he's also doing it through like a very learned understanding of Greek and Latin stories and ancient culture.
0: It's a very dense book, and uh, I, I have to admit, I, I, I when I first started reading it, it was it was challenging for me, and uh, you know because uh, Octavian speaking sort of the vernacular. Of the time it takes a little getting used to uh, to sort of get into the rhythm of of how language worked uh, back at that time. Um, but why was it important for the author to do that? To not you know necessarily make it e- easy for the reader to you know to try to you know like I did sort of have to learn you know how to uh, understand how the characters uh, spoke you know to make it you know a little more authentic.
3: Well, I think it's true to. Octavian's voice, you know, so if we think about someone in the 18th century that experienced this kind of education, you know, this is some kind of facsimile of how they might write and how they might think. And, you know, the vocabulary is just fascinating, (laughs) you know, like all of, and it's not just, you know, S-A-T words, but it's just like the names for different types of clothes and hats and like what was used to polish silver and stuff. So for someone like me that writes historical fiction, you know, someone like M.T. Anderson points you to all the kinds of stuff you should start to put in your back pocket about your own time in your own place that you write about. And I feel that way, more, I don't feel that way a lot, actually, when I read historical fiction, but I definitely feel that way when I read this book.
0: It's interesting, I always think about a book that sort of shows you how to read it as you're reading along. And so it kind of teaches you, um, not just in the the story or the, you know, by historical facts, but trying to immerse you in the, um, the, in the moment.
3: Right. And, you know, it's funny, I think, as a reader um i have an mfa in poetry my my son is named keats for john keats so one of kind of my go-to reading pleasures has been poetry for for a couple of years i read a lot of romantic poetry so like a lot of wordsworth <laughs> so I guess for me as a reader, as someone who read late romantic, early and late romantic poetry, kind of focused on it, the Octavian nothing voice is not so kind of, it's not so distant from what's been kind of going around, you know, just in my brain, just because other stuff I like to read.
0: I'm curious to, uh, thinking of words, Um, I'm always fascinated with titles. Um, And in this one, it's The Astonishing Life of Octavian Nothing, which is pretty obvious. But then the next part, Traitor to the Nation. Uh, And what do you think about why he titled it, you know, not just The Astonishing Life, but that Traitor to the Nation as well? What what he's trying to, I always think titles are trying to point us sometimes in a direction or make us think about something.
3: Well, you know, quite literally, Octavian is a traitor to the nation by running away. He's a traitor to his owner, and that makes him a traitor to the country. And for me, it's like he wants to be free. (laughs) So he betrays the nation. What kind of nation is this (laughs) if that's the that's the stamp on someone who intelligently pursues freedom.
0: And even in his name, you know, he's given the name Octavia Nothing.
3: Well, and I think that that's also, you know, kind of part of the the trick of the book is, you know, that he takes on the name Nothing because he feels as if he's nothing, you know, because he's kind of so much of the book, especially in the parts that are narrated by Octavian, he, you know, says, you know, I became observant. And he constantly, you know, kind of talks about being a big eye, which all narrators are quite literally for the reader. You know, so it's like, this kind of like this god trick, like nothing but everything, you know, so when he declares i 'm nothing that 's also a weird way of saying you know i 'm kind of everything, everything that matters, but that you don 't acknowledge that you don't see, that you deny
0: and the the, the first volume is almost sort of an uh, for him an emptying a. Uh, uh, and emptying out, um, and we haven't talked much about the Pox Party and what that was. And I, I, I don't want to. I, I think, think that's something for the reader to discover, and just how this really just just empties him out, and just al- almost destroys him. And then how, um, and and then sort of he has to build up basically uh, from nothing in that way. And I wonder, I, and I haven't had the chance to read the volume two if that sort of uh, carries through in that second volume as well.
3: You know, it does. I haven't read it for a long time. I like the second book, I think, better than the first, <laughs> even though I haven't read it for a few years. It's funny, my honest to goodness truth, it's two things. Like it plays up more of the kind of straight up adventure story, you know, that we were talking about before um, before we started the show, because it's really, it's it's like a high sea story. There's uh, a, like a lot of battle scenes. There are, you know, all these people that you meet like in the military, going here, going there, going into houses, seeing people in tents and horrible situations. So that's that kind of adventure story, but also kind of back to the nothing part. Of Octavian's name, that's a theme that really gets played out with Octavian and Dr. Trefusis in the second book. They have like this philosophical discussion over the course until Dr. Trefusis dies in the second book about what nothing is. And that's something that comes up in the first book, like how Dr. Trefusis will jump into a room to try to catch everything disappeared because it can't be there if no one's there to observe it kind of thing. And in the second book, that really gets played out around John Locke. So my memory of the second book was really learning a lot about John Locke's philosophy. (laughs) And I remember after I read kingdom on the waves, I remember like looking for like a guide on John Locke. Like I, it made me, I like, it made me look into (laughs) the philosophy of John Locke and like read some stuff and understand his relationship Philosophically, to the thinking of the founders and whatnot. So, it's like if this is what people want to get into, it might be worth it during these times <laughs> actually to think about our situation, our political situation, in strict philosophical terms. It might be useful.
0: It might be. It might be. Uh, is there a, a part of the book that
3: you'd like to share? Oh, my goodness. So let's see. So Octavian Nothing, there are lots of little little chapters. You know, they're not so much chapters as they kind of are meditations that tell the reader, give the reader valuable information. And this is one toward the end of the book, and it's very short, and it's very stirring. They bound me hand and foot. They placed me in a solitary darkness. They put a mask upon my face with a metal bit between my lips to silence me. They gave me a tongue and then stopped it up so they would not have to hear it crying. And that's it. So, you know, it's just kind of the majesty of the simplicity For something like that to be in the mix with all this kind of really kind of dense stuff, long sentences full of strange words about outfits no one has seen before, you know, and then something like that pops out.
0: It's very stark and very raw and definitely very memorable. Well, uh, Victoria, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to... um, Talk to me both about uh, your own book, uh, Zora and Me, the Summoner, and uh, Zora Neale Hurston. And for uh, choosing this book, I have to admit, it's one of those books that I I was, I was I knew about, but I never got around to reading. So I'm really glad uh, you chose it. So I gave me a chance to oh, uh, to read it. Great. And, and I, <laughs> I, I'm definitely going to get to volume two uh, as soon as I can. <clears throat> uh, so uh, so well- thank you very much for that
3: oh my god well thank you so much for having me on your show you know it's like this book i just i love these books so much and i don't know if i've really talked about them with anyone other than my husband (laughs) so so it's just nice to chat with you about them thank you so much for having me on
0: you can find victoria's website at VictoriaBondauthor.com. thank you for joining me on dream gardens the theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can find the Dream Gardens podcast website at jleemott.com and my author website at jodileemott.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.